RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first order with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mission log. This episode is also brought to you by Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Discovery Starships Collection. Check out the first 12 all-new starships in the collection and discover how to get yours at eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 267, Star Trek Insurrection. Back in the Cineplex again, are ya? We're glad to have you here. It is Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we look at an episode of Star Trek, or a movie, as we do this week, and let it bask in the sun to find out if stopping and just watching for a little while will lead us to morals, meanings, and messages, and figuring out if the whole thing stands the tests of time. This week, Star Trek Insurrection, the one where Salieri gets a Brazilian. I'll explain that in a bit. Yeah, you'll you'll have to. Uh, I've got trivia coming up in a bit, but first... But first, a word from Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Discovery Starships Collection. Star Trek Discovery is wrapping its first season as we record this, but they have been discovered by Eagle Moss. Now, you know Eagle Moss for their fleet of tiny starships and their armada of great big starships and now they want you yes you you mission log listener you they want you to check out the great big discovery starships in the eagle moss collection tons of ships headed your way seven federation ships including the discovery the shinjo and the europa and five klingon ships like the reimagined bird of prey and the veklar class klingon patrol ship so here's what you do. When you visit EagleMoss.com slash Discovery Starships, you look around. You'll see renderings that serve as the basis for the diecast models themselves, painstakingly reproduced as always under the expert supervision of Star Trek expert. That's how he gives the expert supervision. Uh, that is, of course, Ben Robinson. Officially authorized by CBS Studios, these ships are. They're about 8 to 10 inches from bow to stern. They're hand-painted. They're rich in detail. And, of course, each comes with that magazine that I love so much, uh, full of the awesome information, both about how the ship was designed in our universe and who mans it, how it flies, and what it does in the Star Trek universe. And, of course, it comes with the awesome stand that John loves, upon which you can set your awesome ship. So, subscribers will get their first ship, the USS Shinjo NCC-1227, for only $9.95 with free shipping. Additional models, including the iconic USS Discovery, NCC-1031, will then ship monthly for the special subscriber price of only $44.95 each. That's 20% off the standard retail price, also with free shipping. Now, if you'd rather not subscribe, if you'd rather instead pick and choose the ones you want, 
you can do that. You go to shop.egomoss.com for that or check your local comic shop. You're going to pay about 10 bucks more per ship if you buy them individually. But saving money isn't the only reason to subscribe. Subscribers get free gifts worth over $100 during their subscription as well. And, of course, you can cancel your subscription at any time. So, to subscribe, go to eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. To buy individually, go to shop.eaglemoss.com. And a huge thanks to Eaglemoss for sponsoring this week's show. John's got trivia coming up in just a moment, but first I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Next to the last time, we're going to get trivia about a Jean-Luc Picard story. Unless we one day start doing the novels. (laughs) I'm guessing, though, this is the next to the last time that we're going to get trivia. Well, no, I take that back because I think he might have been in one episode of a TV Mm. show that we're covering. So let's say Mm -hmm. next to the last time we're going to get trivia about... Jordy. <laughs> okay. That well, is my guess. Okay. All right. Is that, well, well, we can get to that someday, I suppose. But either way, um, uh, for the next to the last time for the TNG as a whole. Yes. Uh, John Champion uh, uh, brings us just a, just a passel of trivia. Well, here we go, Ken, for a Star Trek insurrection. And this movie was written by Rick Berman and Michael Piller, screenplay by Michael Piller, and directed by Jonathan Frakes. But... But even that little tip of the iceberg only tells you just a small part of the story. Now, look, this is where the trivia section of our little show gets really, really difficult because it's all about editing down to just a few nuggets to set the stage for where we are in our story. Insurrection is a movie with a wildly complex production history, and because it didn't sit totally right with critics and at the box office – There has been a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking about this one. Now, most prominently, Michael Piller himself wrote a book about his experience writing Insurrection, and he did it by keeping a detailed journal throughout production. I'll spare you all the details here because there are so many, but please go get it if you can. Uh, Sandra Piller can sometimes be found selling them at conventions. You can find it by uh, searching on the internet. Um, If you have an interest in Star Trek or an interest in filmmaking, you need to read this book. It was released by Trek Corps a few years ago online, then promptly pulled until an agreement could be reached with Paramount. The title is Fade In, The Writing of Star Trek Insurrection. Now, I'm going to take you just through the very beginning. Uh, Pillar had been away from Star Trek for a few years. Rick Berman asked him to write Generations, which he declined, but then after a bit of a dry spell in Hollywood, he was enticed to come back to Trek. Uh, Now, Rick and Michael knew they wanted to use a classic literary storyline, maybe something about a double for Picard? No? Okay, then it hit on Michael that they would do a Fountain of Youth story, 
And in the initial version, Picard would find an old Academy friend who was sort of in hiding on a planet, and he had seemingly not aged a day. So that's the starting off point, anyway. And that story would have had the Romulans coming in to steal the secrets of that planet. Oh, and uh, they would have killed Data, uh, and then not. And and then, yeah, they would have killed Data, but moved him to another body. Um, another big influence on the story was... Patrick Stewart, who at this point is given associate producer credit and suggested giving more peril to the captain and also letting the romance develop a little bit more, too. Now, Michael Piller talks a lot on the DVD about developing the story and about how he felt like the script was a return to the moral and ethical dilemmas that would have excited Gene Roddenberry. So there's just a ton of information out there. Go check it out. And uh, as I like to do, Ken, we like to talk about the performance of this movie. Insurrection cost about $58 million, and the worldwide gross is about $112 million. So it cost a little more, but did not do as well as First Contact. It's not a failure. It's not a huge success. It was sort of middle of the road. A lot of people speculate, well, maybe that's why there's so much written and speculated about this movie. Now, one of our listeners uh, a week or so ago asked us about the special effects and why some of those looked different. Well, ILM couldn't do the effects this time around because of a little movie called Star Wars The Phantom Menace. So two new companies, Blue Sky and Santa Barbara Studios, were brought in, and pretty much everything in this movie is CG, uh, except they did have a miniature for the Sona collector device, but everything else CG, even after they built that beautiful new model of the Enterprise E. Hey, we get our first look at the captain's yacht ever, uh, though long speculated to be a part of every Enterprise, and mentioned once before on a Next Gen episode. We actually get to see it for real this time. More sets were used in this film than any Trek film up until this time. In fact, we had a ton of new sets created for First Contact, 18 more were added this time around for a total of more than 50. Now, what's fun is that in the Hollywood tradition and in the Star Trek tradition in particular, so much recycling was done from show to show. Uh, look, Star Trek, the motion picture sets like Sick Bay were reused for Next Gen and then Voyager, which was in production. Uh, they were between their fourth and fifth seasons at this point. Um, so it, along with crew quarters, got redressed for this movie. And oh, oh finally, Deanna gets an office that isn't terrible. Um, <laughs> but there's so much in this comes from Voyager. But then that's on top of all that new stuff that Herman Zimmerman oversaw for uh, for completing this movie. Not to mention an entire Baku village. And he had a lot of location shots for that Baku planet, uh, which were in Thousand Oaks, California. That's kind of north of Malibu. And then they moved production way up north to Mammoth. And uh, the Baku village was created out of whole cloth. Well, specifically, it was created out of foam. Uh, but it looks real and substantial. But it was just a temporary set. Hmm. Now, there's a big thing here. There, there are a lot of deleted scenes for this movie. Um, there's so many, in fact. I'm just going to point out a few. Um, there's a scene in a library on board the Enterprise, and Riker and Deanna are, are talking about the mission, but they're kind of flirty, and uh, they get shushed 
which is entertaining. But it is kind of funny. Uh, why would you need an enterprise library when you literally have a library computer everywhere and you can replicate books? But but yet, there it is. And they built a little set for it. Um, then you have the big dramatic kiss between Picard and Anige. Now, they just felt like it didn't play right, and that's too bad because that's something that Picard really wanted. He wanted to ramp up the romance for Picard. And in the tradition of Star Trek Generations, there is an alternate ending. Rafa would have been caught in the metaphasic energy of the rings. He would have then de-aged in dramatic fashion, getting younger and younger, presumably back to a baby. Uh, they shot pieces of it, and it's kind of cool because you get to see F. Murray Abraham looking a lot more like himself for that part of the sequence. But yeah, just like in Generations, they decided, you know what, this it looked good on paper. It didn't play quite right when they watched the, the rushes. They hadn't finished a, a full version of it to show a test audience. But it wasn't dramatic enough. It didn't work. So they got to go back and create something a bit more, uh, a bit more explodey, shall we say. <laughs> now let's talk about guest stars. We have Anthony Zerb, playing Admiral Doherty, although he actually read for the role of Rafo, and everyone really liked him. So even though he didn't get that part, they figured he was perfect for the Admiral. He's been in so much in a career that began in the early 60s. Of course, I love his offbeat genre credits like uh, The Return of the Man from Uncle. He was in a bunch of episodes of Mission Impossible, he was in a Bond film. He was in License to Kill. Oh, and he played Ulysses S. Grant in North and South alongside Jonathan Frakes. And look, if you don't remember anything else we talk about here today, remember that Anthony Zerb played the villain in one of the most important releases of the late 1970s, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. <laughs> <laughs> Good God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, did. I went there. Uh, also, up for the role of the Admiral, uh, it was suggested by Patrick Stewart, was his great friend, the great Brian Blessed. Not only an actor with a lot of sci-fi and Shakespeare under his belt, but the only actor I know of who has trained as a real astronaut, having done over 800 hours of such in Star City, Russia. And I don't know if it's still true today, but he was actually on the list to be able to go up to the uh, ISS. Now, Greg Henry plays Gallatin. He'll make one more appearance in Trek on an episode of Enterprise, and you may have seen him in Guardians of the Galaxy, Slither, and I really liked him in the series Hell on Wheels, which was just an awesome show, as I've mentioned before, and it heavily featured Colmini, and it was shot by Marvin Rush, so double points there. And uh, we would have had a few other familiar Trek faces, both Max Gradenchik and Armin Shimmerman shot scenes, Armin as Quark, uh, which were ultimately deleted. And also, it's kind of hard to recognize him. I would say impossible to recognize him under the makeup, but you have Joseph Ruskin as one of the Sona. Ruskin started his career with Trek way back in 1968 when he played Galt in the Gamesters of Triskelion, and he later appeared in Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise as well. Ruafo, as we know, could have been played by Anthony Zerb, uh, he also could have been played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ultimately, though, F. Murray Abraham was a hands-down favorite. Look, everyone within the sound of my voice, he's kind of a legend. 
He's been great in so much of his career, but uh, most people will remember his Academy Award-winning performance as Salieri in Amadeus. And Ken, do you know what his first credited movie is? One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, you're so close. But no, it is 1971's They Might Be Giants. Oh, really? Yeah, that's that's for you. That's very interesting. You know, I've always meant to watch that movie, but I never have. Mm, He mm. was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, though, right? No, he he was indeed not in One no. Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. But great movie. I'm glad we <laughs> glad we got to talk about it here. And I'm glad I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm wrong because mm-hmm. I am. Yeah, there you go. You can rest easy tonight. <laughs> Finally, the role of Anish was offered to Sally Field, hmm. and she turned it down. And in stepped Donna Murphy, who primarily has a huge career in professional theater on Broadway. Several times, and if you don't know her from there, she turns up in quite a few TV and film roles as well, including The Bourne Legacy, Spider-Man 2, and voice work for Disney in Tangled and its spinoff stories. All right, hold on, because I promised earlier that we would talk about F. Murray Abraham getting a Brazilian yeah, that was a promise. It was a promise. Yeah. yeah, and I feel mm-hmm. like that's a that's a thing that we have to uh, have to revisit. Mm-hmm. I I I normally stay out of the trivia thing. If, yep. if I'm in it, it's as a joke. Mm-hmm. But I did ask you please to check something for me. Yes. So so the way they do the facelifts in this movie, or, or the skin <laughs> stretching, whatever, right. in this movie is very similar to the way they do the plastic surgery in the movie Brazil. Right. And there's only one female uh, Sana that I remember seeing. Mm-hmm. And the female Sana that we see on the bridge of Ruafo's uh, ship looks exactly like Catherine Hellman to me in the middle of her, <laughs> like, 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 in the middle of some of her facelift stuff yeah. when she was um, when, in, in the movie Brazil. Right. To the point that I got in touch with our friend Rick Sternbach and said, hey, do you know anything about this? And he said, no, but you know who you should get in touch with? Is Doug Drexler because I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that this is like straight out of Brazil. Like this was a this was a doff of the hat. This was a a knowing nod and a wink in that direction. Like yeah, yeah. we know, but isn't this funny? Because now we made her look exactly like this character. Yeah, and and so I know Rick well enough to say hey, but yeah. I don't know Doug well enough to say hey. Oh, but wait, I do. We're, we're not bragging, yeah, but you know Doug well enough to say hey, and so yeah. I said, do me a favor, can you ask him this question? And now. Uh, I get to be wrong twice before we even get to segment two. Because <laughs> he said no. <laughs> what the heck? Because it looks exactly it looks exactly like her character, like from that moment in Brazil. But you're telling I, me that he said, yeah, he said no. It's basically just like, eh, look, it's sort of a a parody joke on a facelift, and and that's the way it's going to look. So that's the way it did look. And uh, you know what? You can only take that joke so far. And I, I think pretty much we're all going to look like Catherine Hellmond in Brazil once you uh, once you take that joke to a logical extreme. December 1998. And you went to the movies. You might have fallen in love with Shakespeare in love. You could have made a plan to see a simple plan. But you rebelled against all of that, opting instead to see Star Trek Insurrection. Space, the final frontier, and data's gone a bit crazy. On one of those wonderfully developing planets we often see on Star Trek, Haystacks, wagons, the occasional goat. 
Data is running amok. He's hidden from the planet's inhabitants, or he was until he took off his hood of invisibility. They knew something was up anyway, though, probably because of all the phaser blasts all around. While the villagers are confused, we've gotten to go behind the scenes to the science station hidden on the hill. Starfleet personnel and a few unidentified aliens are trying to get the android under control. He keeps talking about his secondary protocols being active. Then, oh, awkward, everyone can see the duck blind now, as Data has disabled its cloak. On the Enterprise, it's another pleasant, if uneventful, diplomatic mission, welcoming a diminutive race of aliens into the Federation. Can anyone remember when they used to be explorers? The whole gang's here, including, Hey, there's Worf! With literally no explanation as to why. They get a call from Admiral Dougherty. Your android's on the blank, Jean-Luc. Not answering our hails, holding the Starfleet and Sona crew from the duck-blind hostage. Do us a favor, send us data schematics, and whatever you do, don't come into the briar patch. Yes, that's actually what they call that section of space. Thorny, in a celestial way. Like a nebula, but with more anomalies and a cuter name. Geordi says the problem can't be Data's emotion chip. He didn't take it with him. Picard orders Geordi to send the schematics, though the Enterprise will make a stop at the Briar Patch on its way someplace else, completely in the opposite direction. The Sona, by the way, are the unidentified race from the Duckblind, and one of them is giving Dougherty an earful. The Duckblind was a stupid idea to begin with. Sure, it was to protect the planet's population, but all this worry over 600 people... I think we've met Picard's nemesis for this movie. And what's Starfleet planning to do with a planet that could jeopardize the population anyway? Suddenly, the Sona ship on which Dougherty and Ruafo are talking is rocked by photon torpedo fire. It's Data, in the mission scout ship, firing to keep the Sona ship away from the planet. On its way, the Enterprise has hatched a plan to catch Data. Basically, they've rigged a tricorder to force him into reset mode, though they'll have to get close to him first. Meanwhile, Troy and Riker are learning about the Sona. They're conquerors and drug dealers. So why is Starfleet working with them? Also, Troy and Riker are seriously flirting. Hard. In the Briar Patch, Dougherty tells Picard of Data's attack. He and Ruafo are sending in troops, though Picard asks for time to catch Data himself. Dougherty gives him 12 hours. Get your android and get the heck out of here, you big nut. Seriously, it's a good-natured get-out. It only sounds like a no-seriously-get-out. Also, we're going to call for sonar reinforcements. Just in case. In an epic bit of flying and song, Worf and Picard capture Data. Later, they beam down to... free the hostages? Who are having a lovely meal and pleasant conversation. They've been treated very well, according to the ranking Starfleet and Sona officers on the ground. Troy is amazed by the planet's children. Such clarity of purpose. Amazing mental focus. And boy, can they play hacky sack. That is just the beginning of the Baku surprises. They're not a developing people. Far from it. They're a very advanced people who've thrown over things like warp drives and positronic brains and 24th century technology. This isn't their first contact. The Baku were not holding the duckblind crew. Data was. He told the Baku that the visitors were their enemy, and that more enemies would follow. 
Picard says interference is the last thing Starfleet ever wants to do, but Anish says they've apparently done the last thing they want to do. She is not happy. Picard apologizes for disturbing them, and he and the duck-blind crew head back to the Enterprise. Reporting to Dougherty, he explains that harm to the Baku will be minimal since they're already warp-capable. Dougherty seems relieved. He'll get Picard's report, and the duck-blind crew, on the way back to the planet. The Admiral says he has a few loose ends to tie up there. Which Picard seems to find... odd. Meanwhile, Geordi and Picard are working on the mystery of the malfunctioning mandroid. Geordi says Data was fired on and hit by a Sanaa weapon. That's what caused him to malfunction, kicking in the secondary protocols. Those secondary protocols basically eliminate grays and nuance. They're binary. He does what's right and fights what's wrong. They wake him up and ask him the last thing he remembers from the mission. It was following some children. And so, it's back to the planet to retrace his steps. The child Artem was there, and he leads them to the scene of the incident. It doesn't take long for Data to find what he apparently found the first time, a cloaked, blocky sort of spaceship hidden in a lake not far from the Baku village. Picard and Data go to check out the ship, and Anish goes with them. Inside the ship, they find... the outside. It's a giant holodeck, made to look like the planet and the Baku village. Having helped Worf's brother move one time, it takes Picard no time to figure out the purpose of this ship, to take the Baku without their knowing. They go to sleep on one planet, then, unbeknownst to them, wake up on this ship on their way to some undiscovered country. This exposition interrupted by phaser fire. A Sona soldier in the ship fires on Data, Picard, and the Niche. They take him down... Then Data and Picard head back to the Enterprise. Now, lots of other stuff has been going on at the same time. We'll start with this. The Sunnah are ugly. They may not have been at one time, but an obsession with life prolongation has led them to radical treatments of facelifts and toxin therapy. Ruafo's body is producing too many toxins, according to an attendant. The Ruafo says he'll not need those treatments once his mission is complete. Now, here's the other thing. Everyone on the Enterprise is acting younger. Worf's oversleeping, showing up to work disheveled. Riker and Troy are flirting like school kids. Picard is dancing. But it all goes beyond that. Worf's skin is breaking out. His hair is growing out of control. Dr. Crusher says people are showing up to sick bay not because they're sick, but because they're better physically than they have been in years. With all that, Picard beams down to the planet with a question for Anish. How old are you? She's 300, give or take. The Baku left their world, a world on the brink of self-destruction, 309 years ago. They were just looking for a place to be left alone when they found this planet. Turns out the planet's rings create a metaphasic radiation that constantly regenerates their genetic structure. And now Picard knows what Dougherty and the Sunnah have been up to. And why? So he's going to tell. They obviously want to keep this a secret, so making their plans known should put a stop to them. Picard also confides in Anish about how disappointed he is that his people are at it again, forcing a small band of people off their land for the perceived benefit of others. The benefits are pretty sweet, though. Geordi has eyes now. Human eyes. His own. He can see. 
Hey, remember those sonar reinforcements Dougherty sent for? They're here, and Dougherty and Ruafo are on the Enterprise. Picard tells them he's found the hollow ship, and Ruafo is through being nice. Return my men and leave, or I will blow up your ship. With the sonar officer gone, Dougherty tries to make small talk. Picard's not interested. He says he'll take what he knows to the Federation Council, though Dougherty says he is acting on orders from the Federation Council. This is not a prime directive issue. The Baku are not indigenous to the planet. And besides, we're talking about 600 people versus billions of people throughout the Federation. Doesn't wash with Picard. We are betraying the principles on which the Federation was founded. It's an attack upon its very soul. He again pleads the case for the Baku, but Dougherty is unmoved. He orders Picard out of the briar patch and urges him to file whatever protests he wants. By the time Picard does, the Baku will have been relocated, the metaphasic radiation harvested, and the planet made uninhabitable for generations. And thus is Picard's insurrection born. No, it's not just the name of the motion picture. Picard takes off his pips, loads up the captain's yacht with weapons, and prepares to head for the planet. Of course, his officers are wise. They'll not let him go it alone. And so it's Worf, Troy, Crusher, Data, and Picard to help the Baku evade capture, while Riker and Geordi take the Enterprise to tell the worlds of the harm being inflicted on the Baku, to put a face on what's being done by the Council to the Council. The next 30 minutes are a slow-speed chase. The Baku are headed towards caves in the mountains. They'll move along lines of Kelvinite to inhibit the Sunnah transporters. The caves are thick with Kelvinite as well, so the villagers should be safe once they get into darkness, shielded by the caves. Where there's no Kelvinite, the crew will use transport inhibitors, but the Sunnah fight that by tagging the villagers and beaming them up that way. Still, there's time for character development. The child Artem learns that Data's not someone to be feared. Data learns that to be more human, he needs to learn to play. Not play the violin or put on a play. Just play. And Picard learns to be in the moment. That being able to slow down can really save a life. It's still a long chase, though. A number of the Baku have been transported to holding cells aboard the Sanaa ship. And eventually, Anish and Picard are tagged and captured. While all that's been happening on the planet, Dougherty has given Rafo permission to send some of his ships to stop the Enterprise. Well, that leads to a fight, one that ends with the Enterprise jettisoning its warp core and the destruction of a Sonos ship. Back aboard Rafo's ship, Picard reveals something Crusher had told him earlier. In the holding cell, he lets Dougherty in on a secret the Sonos have been keeping. They are also Baku. Younger than Anise, these were kids who wanted an off-world-style life. They tried to take over and were banished as a result. For the Sanaa, this has been a voyage home. Dougherty and the Federation have been played as pawns in Ruafo's blood feud. Alone, Dougherty tells Ruafo that this whole thing has been a mistake. The deal is off. So Ruafo kills Dougherty. With the Starfleet representative out of the way, he orders his crew to start collecting the metaphasic radiation from the planet's rings. The Baku be damned. Rafo sends his first officer to get Picard. He's to be, well, left to die in a dangerous part of the ship. But Picard plays on the officer's conscience, his love of the Baku. Ultimately, he persuades Rafo's first officer to help stop Rafo. 
This they do by using Ruafo's tools against him. Remember the hollow ship? Yeah, they beam Ruafo and his bridge crew onto a replica of the Sunab Bridge. It looks to them like the metaphasic radiation harvest is going perfectly, when in fact it has been stopped and the collector disabled. Doesn't take Ruafo long to figure that out, though, and it doesn't take the crew left on his ship to realize that they've been hijacked. They take weapons offline, which stops Worf from destroying the collector. Meanwhile, Ruafo has beamed at the collector and restarted the harvesting countdown. So Picard beams over to the collector. He and Ruafo fight. Picard starts a chain reaction that'll lead to the collector's destruction, dooming them both, though at the last moment, Picard is beamed away. In the end, Riker seems to finally be comfortable with his feelings for Troy. Artem learns to not fear Data. Data learns to play. And Picard indicates to Anish that he'll be back. Someday. The end. I can't wait for that movie. Which movie? When Picard goes back to Anish. Yeah, I'm assuming that that wasn't a novel or anything like that, but it ought to be, because that's seriously how that ought to end. I started thinking yeah. about it, honestly. I was like, so he goes back there, he gets younger, he raises a kid, he tells that kid all about, I understand what your mother and everybody else here thinks about off-worlding, but off-worlding is actually pretty sweet. So what you do is you go out there, you play around for a bit, you learn things, you come back here, mm-hmm. and you live forever just like me and your mom. Yeah, yeah. And Picard is, he's really almost been through it already because remember, he, he's lived his life. He also lived that other life of that guy with the flute. Yes. Yeah, he's got so much experience just living life after life after life. <laughs> he does. And here's the other thing. And I know we haven't talked about this. It was a couple of weeks ago now, but in generations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Kirk says that he just got there as far as he knew, but he'd actually been there 78 years. Right. We really don't know how long Picard was hanging out in the Christmas tree shop. Yeah, true. He might have also been there for 78 years. He may have lived more lives than we than we can even begin to know. Plus, he can be Dixon Hill at the drop of a hat. Yeah, see? Exactly. Yeah, He is basically built for life after life after life. And he has had so many families. I mean, he raised a family and grandkids on that one planet. And like you said, in the Nexus, he, he had Tiny Tim and Peter Cratchit <laughs> and all the... <laughs> Right. You know, yeah, all the Dickensian characters. Um, hey, you mentioned that Worf is back. Yes, for no good reason. For absolutely yeah, no. Well, it's amazing because they even said, so So Picard sees him and says, Mr. Worf, what the hell are you doing here? Right. And while Worf is like saying whatever he's supposed to say about why he's there, yeah. we actually cut away from that conversation. Right. And hear Geordi talking to Riker and vice versa. Okay, so this is stuff that I left out of trivia, but um, it, it, it's – so the movie is treated as something to stand alone here, and, and you just need a line or two to justify his presence at all, just to say, oh, yeah, Worf is here for those who are watching Deep Space Nine. Right. So for that tiny little slice of the audience who were really into that show, oh, but Worf was there. Now, for those who were not watching DS9, it didn't matter. And they specifically left out dialogue that references Jedzia Dax. That, that's spoiler. That's a character. Um, because they didn't want to confuse the audience. So there is this one little moment that is very subtle and worth mentioning here. So Worf waking up, you know, late. Okay. So he's waking up from a nightmare and being late to work actually because that story does have some crossover uh, of sort of Worf's state of mind 
when mm. he arrives on the Enterprise. Now, I won't spoil it here because we do have listeners who are going in order with us. But yeah, that that is a reference to a plot point in Deep Space Nine. But again, in terms of production, and this is Rick Berman telling Michael Piller, like, look, just take out any lines that are purely for exposition just for those people who are watching this other show. You don't need it to just move the story along. All they need to know is that this is the crew from Next Generation. Worf is there. Go. It, it, it Honestly, though, it would have been just as plausible if, like, Picard had said, Mr. Worf, what are you doing here? And Worf was like, I left my bat left. <laughs> right? Yeah. I yeah. was coming back to pick up something I forgot. Mm-hmm. And that would be, that'd be fine. That'd be I it. Think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know it's not a major plot point, but I actually think it is a major plot point. Mm-hmm. Troy has kissed Riker with a beard, right? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, he already had a beard when they were down on... Um, uh, on Beta uh, Z. Beta Z. Thank you very yeah. much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they made out there quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And then also she's kissed Thomas Riker, which I know is not quite the same thing. But Thomas Riker did have a beard. And yeah. physically, that's like kissing Will Riker because it actually is Will Riker. He's just calling himself Thomas now and he's been away for a while. Plus, he's a different guy, but he's not. Yeah. So, I mean, this this movie pretty much has no shot with me now. It's totally ruined. It's totally mm-hmm. ruined. It's I'm almost, so almost like the Borg Queen. <laughs> don't, don't, don't even, don't even. But with a beard. Yeah. yeah. Now we're going to get 100 emails about Riker's beard. Yeah. Yes. And Riker's bad eggs and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And, and the full Riker. Yeah, and the full Riker. I maintain she's not getting the full Riker if there's a beard not included. Just <laughs> and there's something about this movie that is very disturbing to me. Hmm. Um, I was led to believe that plastic surgery technology would be way more advanced in the 24th century. I mean, we've we've seen Dr. Crusher change a crew member into a whole different alien species in like three minutes and mm-hmm. then back again. They're like, hey, we need to turn Worf into something else. Cool. Done. See ya. Okay, well, let's bear in mind that he comes from a planet that has thrown over technology. And certainly, they don't need plastic surgery because, you know, the planet's keeping them forever young, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know. <laughs> but they, they have so much other technology, which That's I'm sure true. they traded for. Yeah. They, you know, they, they really are terrible little. people, you know. Uh, they make Ketracel white. Yeah. <laughs> They do that. And here's the thing. I don't watch Deep Space Nine yet. And yeah. I know what Ketracel White is. Okay. Yeah. They really are terrible people. Yeah. So you would, yeah, you're right. You'd think they'd you know, shell out a few bucks for a plastic surgery. Except they got to be like 100 years old at that point. Yeah, is it? All the know, plastic surgery in the world, may, it may be too late at some point, I guess is what I'm saying. No, nah, there's no wrong time to start with the good plastic surgery. They, they could run into, they could be like a pack led ship passing by. That they had traded for, like, some plastic surgery equipment they don't even know how to use. So that, Well, okay, but that could actually be what they're using, to be honest. Oh, okay. That, that, yeah, that might be true. How do we, uh, how do we feel about the little CGI pet? Eh, fine, whatever. Yeah. We, had to, we have to get the kid back in the cave somehow, right? I mean, it was yeah. so unimportant that I didn't mention it. I don't, it's a bit like carrying a caterpillar around with you, it seems, because it seemed to really have no personality. It was just cute. Mm-hmm. You know, which caterpillars are, too, but. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. Whatever. I mean, it was state of the art at the time. You well, know? that's it. I remember being really impressed with the hummingbird. Mm-hmm. I thought that was super cool for a piece of CG. But then the the little pet, I was like, eh, yeah, we don't we, we don't need this. What are you trying to do? Sell a toy? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Again, we, we've mentioned this before with uh, the, the jump of TNG to the big screen. There's more great scenes in the Enterprise full of people and activity, the likes of which we never saw on the show before, but we started to get in the movies. And there's one minor thing. Uh, I've pointed out that there are people everywhere where we didn't always have people. But this thing that I noticed is that you have a lot more overlapping dialogue so you never had this in Star Trek on TV, and you rarely got it in the movies. Now you mm-hmm. get it all the time, because the, the nature of how TV shows are shot is very, very different. But that's something that was sort of like the golden rule on Star Trek. You do a line of dialogue, you stop, then the next line of dialogue starts. And it's much more naturalistic, and I think that's one of the things that separates these movies from the TV show. But it, it, it kind of it startled me in watching this, but I really liked it. Well, I, I I like it because it adds a bit of realism, but I still don't know what Worf's doing there. And I, and I think I blame the overlapping dialogue. <laughs> okay. I think that must be yeah. the issue. Uh, yeah. You mentioned, by the way, all the people and all the busyness and all that stuff. Hey, mm-hmm. thanks to the everybody, seriously. And I'm not kidding. I was mm-hmm. about to be kidding. I decided not to. Thanks to everybody who wrote in to tell us where uh, Lieutenant Junior J was in Star Trek First Contact. Oh, yeah. I, I can't believe you let trivia go by, though, and didn't mention that, yeah, she's here, too. She was actually in the uh, in the in the reception uh, for the uh, for the for the group of alien people at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Uh, you see her strolling by at one point, and uh, yeah, it's always good to see her. Yeah, I wasn't going to mention it because we would get four hundred more pictures, but now <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now we well, get four hundred more pictures of Lieutenant Junior J from Star Trek Insurrection. Well, no, but we don't need four hundred pictures because we actually saw her this time. I'm just saying, if we mention Lieutenant Junior J. Yeah, to our audience and the show, which is whether we say we want them or not, we're going to get 400 pictures of. Yeah, right. Jane. Well, that's fine. Could be worse. Could get 400 pictures of them stretching, you know, F. Murray Abraham's skin across his face. Uh, hashtag do not send 400 <laughs> pictures of F. Murray Abraham stretching skin across his face. Hey, uh, did Data really need to stop to pet a fish? I don't remember that happening. That took me out of the movie for a moment. I was really? like, is this a Brent thing? Is this, why, why is it? Yeah. Where did he stop and pet a fish? I really when don't remember that. When he starts the, the entry into the water, he's walking around, walking through, and then. <laughs> oh, underwater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. again, I mean, I think that's, that sort of goes back to your question about the little, you know, animated pet, right? Yeah. It's yeah. so neat to show that, oh, look, you can do this and you're able to do this. And seriously, mm-hmm. I don't know, dude. I mean, if you were able to, wouldn't you pet a fish? <laughs> If you're maybe, like walking, I, if you're walking underwater and a fish stops and looks at you, wouldn't wouldn't you maybe just be like, hey, you know, maybe a little, just a little under the chin, kind of, you know? Just well, maybe I would, but I'm not an android on a mission. I will tell you honestly, mm-hmm. there have been a lot of times in the past couple of movies where Data is supposed to be funny, mm-hmm. and there were a couple of times in this movie too that he's supposed to be funny. That I was like, oh, I kind of wish they hadn't done that line. When Riker shaves his beard. Mm-hmm. And says, smooth as an android's bottom, eh, Data? And then it's like another minute, minute and a half, I think. Because the scene goes on and they have like really important stuff. And then before they're about to part, when Data says, uh, uh, Commander, may I? And then like feels his cheek and then just mm-hmm. shakes his head and walks away. <laughs> right, <laughs> that right. made me laugh every time I watched it for this. It was, yes. it was really, his humor is best when it's kind of understated. I mean, a lot of times you see the joke coming from a mile away. And when he wanted to touch his face, I was still like, I don't understand why he does that. And then what he just did, like the little, like, no, (laughs) that's hilarious. Yeah. No, that, that was amazing. At the time, it was all about the timing of that edit to, to come back to a little bit later. Hey, uh, a holodeck ship makes 
a ton of sense. I'm going to say to the extent of why aren't all ships holodecks? Mm-hmm. I mean, look, uh, it just you you've got a ship, get a call it the Enterprise, whatever, but if you and we've mentioned this before on the show, you open up your doors to your quarters and then oh, look, I'm in a suburban house and right. I, there's a backyard and yeah, I can walk to a 7-Eleven. I feel like you're trying to kill everybody on the Enterprise. No, well, you're just saying that, that they do that. They're not going to pay attention to anything else. And the holodeck safety protocols will be exactly. off. See, and, that's actually it. Yeah. People, people nearly die in the holodeck every time there's a holodeck. That's true. But, but hey, hey, back to the premise of this movie and the holodeck and Enterprise or in Next Generation, when it works, it worked in Homeward. Yeah. All right. You know? Yeah. Oh, hey, the scene with uh, Picard. He's got all the pads, all the pads in the world. And I keep thinking... Don't they have an app on one of those pads that has all the stuff in it that he needs to read? So the library scene that you were talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. were they books or were they a bunch of pads? Well, they they had computer terminals, but then they also had cabinets with books. But it looked like the special books. And I get it. I get it. But but still, you can replicate a book. It's like, I want to see what a Gutenberg Bible looks like. Well, you don't carry a Gutenberg Bible with you on the ship. Mm. You you replicate one and go, wow, this is... This is pretty cool, you know. Good thing I'm not responsible for it. So too many actual books, too many pads, you're saying. I'm going mm-hmm. to counter with, I saw something in this uh, movie that I think every starship should have. Okay, what's that? A big rotating couch on the bridge. How cool is that? Or love seat. It, and it was yeah. well designed, too. That's yeah. the thing. And it really, it sort of didn't fit, except it really sort of fit. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just seemed perfect. And and like the whole dramatic and then like turning it around and watching it. That is a captain's chair, my friend. That is a yeah. captain's chair. Yeah, that was good. Although it's so big and it does turn like I kept wanting to see a shot of Ruafo just like shuffling his feet on the floor to keep moving the couch. Like somebody on the <laughs> other end of the bridge says if he has to shuffle his feet the other way to turn it around. I would assume and that just... would be automated. Although it would also be funny then to see um, Ruafo up there going, has anybody seen the remote? Is it right. is the remote? <laughs> right. Oh, here it is. Here it is. It's in the cushions of my seat. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Stop looking, everybody. It's all good. Uh, interesting use of drones in this movie. Um, before, at a time before drones were just like a ubiquitous thing right. that, that we all thought about as uh, instruments of war and and instruments for hobbyists and photographers and all. But and it made for a good action scene, really did. Um, but really, just as a rule of thumb, if there is a shootout with drones, just let data do all of it. I get what you're saying, although I will counter that by saying I loved seeing Crusher with a gun. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, just, and like she takes aim, she fires, she hits the drone, which is great because you remember the Robin Hood episode. Oh, where, where yes. Like everybody yeah. had bows and arrows except for Troy and Crusher who had flower pots. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was good to actually <laughs> see her like holding her own in an actual fight. Um, not that fighting is my bag, but I like the fact that she wasn't, you know, hiding behind Picard while he was firing. Right. Yeah. Of course there wouldn't yeah. have been room because Anish was there, but I mean, I'm glad to see she wasn't hiding behind, you know, data or behind Worf. I mean, she was out there, she was out there fighting the fight just like everybody else. Hey, uh, one last question here. Um, the, the regenerative power of being in that metaphasic radiation. Mm-hmm. So the people, the Baku, they, you know, Anish is more than 300 years old and uh, Jordy gets his eyes back and uh, uh, Riker and Troy, they, they get their groove back and everybody is just, everything's great. Picard's doing the mambo. 
does it does it wear off fast? Does it wear off slow? Does it not completely wear off? Because we don't really get a solid answer on that. And I kind of wonder, like, I, I still, to this day, have this question about the end of, like, Indiana Jones and the, the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. You know? Because they go in, they drink from the cup, and look, Dr. Jones Sr., he's he's great. He's good. He, he took a bullet, but then you, you pour a little water from the chalice. He's okay. They leave. They ride off into the sunset. Are they immortal now? I would say if Jordy has his own eyes in the next movie, we'll start to have an answer to your question. Gilbert and Sullivan were an interesting choice. It would also have been funny to ask Ward if he knew Simon and Garfunkel, or Abbott and Costello, or Rufus and Shaka Khan. We will delve deep into insurrection in a moment. But first... But first, a word from Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Blue Apron shops the way you would shop, which means for at least a few meals a week, you can skip the shopping. And I say they shop the way you would because they take great care with the ingredients. The meats are responsibly raised, the seafood is sustainably sourced, and the produce comes from farms that practice regenerative farming. Also, they don't want you to get bored. In a whole year, they won't repeat a recipe on you. So you won't be eating the same thing week after week after week. Now, that may sound expensive, but it really isn't. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers everything you need to make good home-cooked meals about which you can feel good. John, prepare the nummy noises. Oh, here we go. Meals like strip steak and potatoes with spicy maple collard greens, Mm-hmm. Soy-glazed Korean rice cakes with broccoli and soft-boiled eggs. Mm. And creamy fasoli bucati pasta with fried rosemary and walnuts. Mm. Plus, if you're like me, you'll learn a bit about cooking with Blue Apron, about new ingredients, maybe even sometimes things you've never heard of before. But then the next time you go to the store, you see this thing that tasted so great when you got it with Blue Apron, you're getting it again and again. Hey, you just mentioned in the menus one of the items that has the Korean rice cakes. At this very moment in my refrigerator, I have a Blue Apron recipe Mm. featuring Korean rice cakes. I've never cooked with them before, and I'm really looking forward to making this dish. So um, that this is one of the ways that they are stretching my culinary palate. Uh, So I'm very grateful for that. And I just cooked a dish the other night that was so good that I'm ready to cook it again because I learned how to uh, learn how to do some things that I've never done before. Would you like your palate stretched like Mr. Champions? Well, here's what you do. Check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first order with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mission lock. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash mission lock. Blue Apron, a better way to cook And a huge thanks to Blue Apron for sponsoring this week's show. So how long do you think before the Federation turns the space around the Baku planet into Rancho Relaxo? Eight minutes. Eight minutes. Yeah. But but here's the problem. You're going to have a long line of people waiting to get to that planet. I will tell you honestly, I began to wonder... I don't want to say fear for, but I began to wonder about the fate of the Baku. 
Because mm-hmm. what the Federation and, and what the Sona were planning on doing was absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. We're going we're gonna to wait till they fall asleep. Mm-hmm. We're going to take them someplace else. We're going to let them die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And they're going to they're gonna be like, what? what the heck's going on? Because they won't realize, maybe. Although they were smart enough that I don't think it would have taken them long to realize. But by that point, there's nothing they can do about it. So the Federation now has been shamed. They're not going to kill these people. They're not going to relocate these people. But there are 600 people on a whole planet that is, you know, being positively affected by these rings. Mm-hmm. But then even people on the Enterprise are being positively affected as well, right? Mm-hmm. Picard has barely mm-hmm. spent any time on the planet. I don't remember if Riker had even been on the planet, but he was already, you know, starting to feel the effects. Worf had not been on the planet yet when he got the pimple. Right. Right? So just being near the metaphasic radiation, like even from orbit, is enough to 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 feel some of its positive effects. Mm-hmm. Are we hurting are we hurting the Baku just as much if we put a holiday in on like, you know, in orbit or uh, you know, on the next continent? Well, that, that's the thing. You're still going to have a lot of traffic. Yeah. Um it, and it, let's let's assume that the the positive effects of the metaphysic radiation, you know, they they already affect wherever the Baku originally came from. Oh, no. Affecting- I don't think so. It doesn't affect where the Baku originally came from. The Baku... No, no, no but I'm, I'm saying they're, they're, they're a non-human species. Right. Who got there. So so they're, they're non-human. It, it affects Klingons positively. Oh, right, right. Okay, I see what you're saying. Dwarf. Yeah, I, I'm just saying that, like, you know, you could have, like, billions. You got Vulcans, you got Andorians, you got uh, other Klingons coming there. Maybe... Maybe it doesn't affect Tellarites. Maybe they sit this one out. You know, the Horda. The Horda may want to come. The Horda, and, and maybe the Horda. Oh, yeah. I feel just like one of those crystal eggs I laid everywhere. <laughs> That's how good this radiation is. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I don't. And here's the thing: you, you can put up the cones around it, but even that would only last for so long. Because, like you said, a spaceship just flying nearby. Yeah, you know how how near is near enough? Well, it might might be just near enough to get a little taste of that and say like, whoa, let's stop. I realize the cones are over there, but let's stop over here. Right. Mm-hmm. Were there so were there actually anomalies in the briar patch? Because I mean, the Baku really seemed to think that they were like that, that they were set. Mm-hmm. Nobody's mm-hmm. coming in here. We're never coming out again. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And then when Dowardy says, "Oh no, no, don't, don't, don't come into the briar patch because there are too <laughs> many briars for crying out loud," mm-hmm. I mean, were there actual briars? Is it is it actually unsafe? Are the Baku kind of safe at this point, or is it just like, yeah, well, that's that's kind of a bust? Yeah, I didn't get the impression there was anything really more or less safe than any other place they would go in their nice spaceships. All right. So yeah. yeah. So in the novel. Then mm-hmm. that we're writing mm-hmm. where Picard and Anish have been married now for 300 years. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think those students who became apprentices, who eventually became quilt makers, <laughs> now have like stands for the tourists who are coming mm. to be rejuvenated every five to ten years? Mm, and have yeah, we ruined yeah. them at that point? I mean, that's the real question. Have we? No, we've not taken them away. They can still, well, they can still live their lives, except, you know, their lives are still someplace that we all want to go. So they're going to have to be cool with that because we are still the Federation. This is still Federation space. And we could still force them off the planet if we need to. 
Right. Well, okay, but look, now now you're getting into some territory that I think comes to another discussion point that I was thinking of, which, which okay. is that all right, you can you can create the society and you can say, okay, these are the rules. There's 600 of us, and uh, we we will eschew technology, and we don't want uh, people from the outside coming here and, and mucking up what we've got. And maybe you can uh, corral that 600 pretty well, and mm-hmm. you've all got buy-in to say that this is how we're going to live, right? Okay, uh, until the point that that you you got a visitor. And maybe a totally benign, totally benevolent visitor just to hang out, say hi. But but even then, that introduces an unknown factor into the society. And then, since the kids actually grow up, they they do get to adulthood, and then things slow down for them. They they stop aging. So like the ten year old will he won't be a ten year old forever and ever. He'll actually become an adult, but then he'll live presumably a very long time as a very youthful adult. Um, right. at, at one point, do does that society continue to grow? And some of these kids who do grow up have minds of their own and maybe think like, yeah, this is maybe not all it's cracked up to be. And wait, you mean we used to have spaceships? We used to be able to do this? We used to have replicators? We used to have these other fantastical things that that I would have invented had I not known that somebody had already had one and I could have been using all this time. I always wonder about that. Like, um, because obviously right here on earth, we, we have cultures like, you know, uh, Mennonites and Amish who, who do things, who who sort of set limits on the technology that they will use. And then they make, uh, uh, certain concessions for technologies that they they want to use that legitimately make their work easier to do. So um yeah, I, I get it that you can you can set that up, but the more and more they were explaining this to Picard, I kept thinking, like, well, you know that there are other worlds out there. You know you can get to those other worlds. And yeah, they may not be appealing to you, mm-hmm. but to somebody else here, they might actually be appealing. And and going back to a real world, the you know, the the idea that there is a rumspringa that kids will be allowed to go see what happens in the rest of the world and decide, okay, do I want to live with the outsiders? Do I want to live in in the modern world, or do I want to come back and live in the Amish culture that that is sort of enforcing these limits you know so they know that it's out there and some people go and never come back and and some people decide yeah that's not for me i'm gonna stay here so i just wonder like i I think for a movie and 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 for the messages that are in this movie it's an interesting thing to present Mm -hmm. but realistically i i watch that and i ask okay how long can this really go on well i mean what we don't know because ruafo and his people did not just say, "Hey, we want to go live off world." Mm-hmm. They said, "We want to, we want to, we want to live that lifestyle." And so, according to the elders that were still there, they tried to take everything over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's possible that they're like, "Oh, okay, well, yeah, doors always open. You can come back whenever you want to." Yeah, it, it doesn't sound like they just said, "We want to go see what else is out there." It sounds like they said. We want to bring the modern world here. I mean, which mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I, I, well, we'd have to get uh, we'd have to get a Mennonite or, or an Amish person on the show yeah. to ask yeah, them right. to ask right. them how that goes exactly. Or I guess yeah. we could watch that 
being Amish show on cable, but... Well, and even if it's not somebody malevolent like Ruafo, but if it is somebody with good intention, you know, mm-hmm. Ruafo wants to just own it and, and exploit right. it. You right. Know? But, um, yeah, you, you know, you, you can have that. They've had a pretty good run for 300 years. 300 years is a good man. That That is something. Mm-hmm. But um, but I, I think it's going to inevitably change at some point, you know, whether they want it to or not. Well, okay. <laughs> I'm glad Kirk's dead. <laughs> because because what? What would he do? You would just go I mean, in and yeah, uh, he'd, he'd come in and change it. You people, I, yeah, okay, you're kind of working, but you're not really working because you know, mm-hmm. yeah, because you well, got everything you need and you never right. get old. Exactly. And, yeah, uh, we'll call it yeah. something and you'll like it somewhat. Yeah, I wondered a little bit if we were back to to shades of this side of paradise. I mean, not with the same morals meaning messages of this side of paradise, but just the crew shows up and they start to act different and they're happier. And um, what if they just stopped where they were? Well, they can't because you can't in the structure of this story. They're they're not welcome there forever and ever. But um, yeah, I I definitely thought about this side of paradise. Hey, uh, one of the big differences for me watching this movie uh, compared to the last movie is Picard. Mm -hmm. So we barely touched on Picard's character in first contact. We, I I just felt like there was so much to unpack there and, and we couldn't do it within the confines of our show. But, but now we're back to someone who we can easily recognize as being the same guy from the TV series. Like those, those scenes, his scene with uh, Admiral Doherty and uh, his motivations really felt like Picard. And even his relationship with Anij, I was comparing that to the relationships that we had seen Picard have in episodes of Next Gen. And and they, they, they just barely started. This is something that Patrick Stewart said to uh, Michael Piller and, and Rick Berman. They barely started something with him and Lily, and they had this nice, sweet goodbye. But with Patrick Stewart, he, he's thinking, like, were they trying but failing to introduce a, a romantic plot line for Picard there? So... I'm glad to see that Picard come back. The other thing that that came back for this movie, so Michael Piller, he he felt like First Contact had a very dark tone, mm-hmm. and and originally he called Insurrection. Well, it went through many many titles. One of them Stardust, but but Heart of Lightness in in his sort of playing with the title as a play on Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad's book. Um, and I get it. He wanted something a little more uplifting from his point of view. I, I wonder if did we get that ultimately? Did did we get something uplifting here? I, I think he definitely hit the the Gene Roddenberry sort of ethical conundrum, but it was also um it was a bad guy mm-hmm. from within Starfleet who was clearly bad. Right. <laughs> Although he had very interesting motivations, and I think we'll talk about that as well. But um I I wonder if we really got that. There, there was less torture of our own crew, <laughs> so in that sense, there was uh, there was definitely a lighter tone here. But I kind of don't want to say whether I think it works yet because yeah, I mean, yeah. I've been bad about sort of saying you know doing segment four in segment three. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. will say though it is it is very much it is much more a Star Trek story, right? Mm-hmm. Oh sure. Like, sure. I mean, in ways that the last two movies have not been. They took place in the Star Trek universe. They were characters that we know. They were bad guys we know. All of that's true. But 
what was the last really Star Trek movie that we had to this point? Would you say Star Trek Four or Star Trek Six? I would even argue mm. that Star Trek Five is very much a Star Trek movie as well, yeah. handled very clumsily. Yeah. Um, but but I mean, it was it was very much a Star Trek story. And I don't I, generations we talked about was fan service. First contact was was battle in space. I mean, it really mm-hmm. just kind of was to the point of completely changing the bad guy for the movie, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's mm-hmm. been a debate in our certainly in our Facebook page and on Twitter about, uh, and we've gotten a number of emails. Oh yeah, from people yeah. who completely agree with you about the Borg Queen, from people who completely agree with me about the Borg Queen, and from people in the middle who are like, okay, but what about this? Which sort of makes right. me feel like they just kind of want to try to figure out a way to make the Borg Queen work. Right. Whether it actually does or not. This is a Star Trek story. In fact, we can reference Star Trek movies or Star Trek episodes, excuse me, TNG episodes. Well, heck, you mentioned this side of paradise a minute ago. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Homeward earlier as yeah. well. I mean, there are lots of there are lots of Star Trek moments in 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 this Star Trek movie. So without going to the end and saying, and it works beautifully or and they miss the boat. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I do think that they – you can see that they are aiming for that kind of thing, that you tell me that Michael Piller wanted to take this back to something like a Gene Roddenberry vision and then I watch this movie. Those two things are not incongruous at all. It's not surprising at all that that was his aim because, I mean, it's written all over the screen. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think another thing that he got in there that wasn't a a heavily exploited point in the the morals meanings messages here the, the obvious environmental parallel mm. so again tying this back to other star trek stories like star trek 4 the one with the whales um <laughs> you know it, i it, in this movie you have the exploitation of a natural resource for personal gain to the point that it destroys the lives of others it will absolutely destroy, they will literally kill them in this holodeck ship because well one day they'll realize, hey, we're we're maybe getting older, or if we try to explore beyond uh, where 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 we know our village, uh, there's not any there there. Hmm. Oh, that's so, interesting. You, so your assumption was that they were going to leave them in the holodeck ship forever, because I thought that was just a way to get them someplace else. See, uh, my my thought is they get them in the holodeck ship. Why put them anywhere else? Because the holodeck ships are, you know, cost a lot of money and they take a lot of resources. I mean, not oh, not money. Hey, not, excuse me. I'm sorry. Not yeah, money. Not not in Picard's future. But going yeah. back to, I mean, going back to what you said earlier about why isn't every ship a holodeck? I, mm-hmm. I mean, aside from the fact that that you know everybody would die immediately um, <laughs> because that's what holodecks do. <laughs> they, I was they're, actually they're death machines. Yeah. I was given to understand that they actually are very. I don't want to say resource intensive in terms of money, but in terms of power, like they mm-hmm. just require a lot of. They just require a lot. And so I, I would think that they were going to take them someplace else, just drop them someplace else. Wow. Surprise. With, 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 with really no yeah. care. Right. With yeah. no care for what they think or how they feel about it because, you know, they got no radio to call anybody. <laughs> got mm. no ship to get out. I mean, I really thought it was just going to be – I thought it was a – I thought it was, just, oh, let's just get them out of there. And then uh, he would probably leave it to Ruafo, I would think, to put them someplace else. And Ruafo yeah, would that- pretend like he cared and he wouldn't. I was say that that cannot end well, no, <laughs> no matter what. No. That cannot end well. At the very least, it can't end happily. I don't think he would have killed them. I mean, in the long term, yes, they would have died because. Well, well listen, the, I, I don't mean kill them. them like we're. Yeah, not, not like we're going to take the ship and going to blow it up. But I think right. through neglect, it's like okay, well, we got him in a ship. Uh, not my problem anymore. 
Sega. I, well, I think the only thing that stopped him from doing that, though, was the fact that the Federation was looking over his shoulder. I mean, once once he kills um, the Admiral, mm-hmm. then he's like, all right, so begin the collection of the radiation. And and his first officer's like, uh, that's going to kill everybody? <laughs> and Rafa's like, like, yeah, that too. Right? I mean, he's ready. He doesn't care anymore. So... I don't know. The second Starfleet's looking the other way. He might have just blown up the hollow ship anyway. And then told some story about them living on a farm upstate, maybe. So I accidentally stumbled a moment ago into saying that, uh, you know, it costs a lot to run a holodeck ship. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean cost, but I do actually have a question. Okay. Uh, Picard, when he's talking to Anish at one point, says, most of my people who live that faster pace of life would sell their souls to slow it down. Uh, we've talked in the past about the gumbification of various characters, but I'm beginning to think the Federation may be the most gumbified character in all of Trek. Because there's no money, except for the money for which Kirk sold his house. Mm-hmm. Or whatever he sold his house for. We don't know what it was. But he mm-hmm. sold his house for something, which indicates some form of commerce. Uh, everyone in the Federation does what they want to do. We're sort of given to understand, which is not to say you just go around and kill everybody or whatever, but I mean, you want to be a novelist? Fine. And if you're not that good, but you're still working at it, I, I get the impression that that's okay. I believe we're going to come across a character who runs a restaurant and nobody needs restaurants, but he always wanted to run a restaurant, so he does. Right? Right. Yeah. But they all live in a fast-paced world that they would trade in a heartbeat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> look, they, they can, they have and they will change the motivations of, yeah, individual characters all the way up to an institution when it, when it fits the story. Right. Sorry, sorry to say. That's <laughs> yeah. fine. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. just, it's difficult for people who then want to say, you know, well, you remember back, well, like we do sometimes. There's no money. There's no money. There's no money by the time they get to Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Oh, that's right. They still use money in this time. Mm-hmm. But then three movies later, Kirk's selling his house for something. Right. <laughs> right. Right. It's weird to have things that and, – and, and, and the thing is, you know a lot of the writers really are Star Trek fans. Of course. I mean, you know yeah. that. Not all yeah. of them. Nick Meyer wasn't a Star Trek fan and he turned out one of the best Star Trek movies. Okay. Yeah. But a lot of them are Star Trek fans. And, and you know they've got to like they had to have at some point been debating this stuff, and then years later when they go back and watch one of the movies they've written, they're like, "Oh, look at that money!" Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I seem to remember us not having that. Well, but you know what? There is this kind of thread through a lot of Star Trek, and especially in Next Gen. How many episodes do we come across where it's like? It seems like the the major purpose of space travel at all, other than the the nice cushy big galaxy class starships, we just go out and explore, mm-hmm. and they they come back and they report back to uh, Starfleet headquarters. Yeah, we we met a godlike race here. We did this there. Everybody else is just trying to get out. Everybody else is trying to go find <laughs> their own planet where they can start their own Scottish theme park. Right, because the crowds back on Earth are just too much. You know, so there, there's a lot of that. Well, except I don't. Well, who's who knows, though, that it's the crowds back on Earth are too much. This actually could go to the thing I was talking about a moment ago that you, you pretty much get to do what you want to do because we're in a post scarcity economy. We're in a post scarcity mm-hmm. society. You want to go live in a Scottish theme park? Go do that thing. You know what's weird about being weird? You'll put out an ad 
and you'll find 50 people will answer the ad saying, oh, my goodness, I've always wanted to do that, too. So you're going to have friends when you go live in your Scottish theme park. Won't that be great? Yeah. So. For real. Yeah, I don't know. It yeah. just it just struck me as it struck me as kind of odd when Picard's like, oh, man, there's so many people would envy you. Well, from the Federation, because <laughs> I thought right. that was the whole point. <laughs> yeah, One of the whole, whole points thing, anyway. Man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of stooges in the Federation. <laughs> I think I know where this is headed. <laughs> uh, let's talk about let's talk about Admiral Dougherty. Mm, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a great guy. No, no. Uh, what was really interesting to me, though, was his feeling that you could get down in the mud and come out clean. We can handle the Sanaa. Yeah. I'm not worried about that, Dougherty says to Picard. Of course he's going to get killed by Ruafo. Mm-hmm. And forgive me, because this is not a very Starfleet, not a very Star Trek, not a very Federation thing to say. But if we're going to see a movie, he should get killed by Ruafo. Mm-hmm. He absolutely, I mean, he shouldn't because no character should, but he should. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No, look, I, I think you and I took very parallel notes about this. Okay. That, that they do everything they can to show you how repugnant Doherty is. Mm-hmm. Um, and... It, it, it to me, you know, the central theme here that that I find really fascinating because it's so relevant to us today. Once you align yourself with someone or something that is morally and ethically repugnant, it's very difficult to wash that off. You, yeah. you can't wash it off. You don't wash it off. Look, if we believe Admiral Doherty, so maybe he's not just driven by the personal desire. For what he gains here, but 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 he keeps saying it's what's good for the Federation. Mm-hmm. Only he has to get there by breaking his own moral code, meaning that of Starfleet, and by aligning with people who are clearly at odds with others in his profession. And he keeps making excuses. They keep changing. Well, well, the goal here is really important. He, he tries to you know explain that to Picard. Well, well, we can keep the sonar contained. You know, um, well, well, then, it, but we have to do this. But there's only six hundred of the Baku, and, and then fi- he basically says, "Yeah, don't don't worry about it, don't worry about it," until it's too late. But but it was already too late when he started. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you you don't just get to wash your hands and and walk away. You decide to throw in with those who are morally at odds with you, or 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 at odds with what is right. You know, this is what you and I have always said about um, the Prime Directive, and you in particular is, you know, we look at the Prime Directive as something that is not a just a specific rule about not interfering. Mm-hmm. It is more the the concept that we do the right thing, even when it's the difficult thing. It would be a difficult thing to pass up a planet where you've got magic rays that make you younger. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but clearly it is the right thing to do here, and clearly it is the right thing to not throw in with the sona. But um, Admiral Doherty is not made of the same stuff that uh, Jean Luc Picard is. Can I play Lucian's advocate for one second? Oh sure. What about the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few? Well, that's a good point, and I and I thought about that. Yeah. Um, the needs of the many are the how many billions of people in the Federation who uh, who could benefit from this 
call it what you want, this technology or the technology that harnesses this natural phenomenon. But is 600 the right number to sacrifice? Or as Picard points out, what is it, 1,000 or 10,000? Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that what makes it okay to say the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few is the guy who was saying it was also the guy who was doing it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a bunch of paper pushers at Federation Council, right, or Starfleet yeah. Command or whatever, who were mm-hmm. saying, well, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, so we're going to take these few and we're going to screw them. But the many will then you know, be better off because of that. Spock has just killed himself, and he yeah. hasn't done it immediately, and he hasn't done it intentionally, but he knew he was going to die. But he went ahead and did it knowing he was going to die because the needs of the many – the people outside of himself outweighed the needs of the few or his own needs. Yeah. So maybe that's the kind of thing you get to say when you are the one who's doing the sacrificing, when you're making the sacrifice yourself, not so much. It's not the Federation going, well, there's only 10 of those guys, but there's 50 of those guys. So, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and, uh, let's go ahead and nuke those 10 guys. Cause the other 50 guys will be happy. So flip that around. If the, uh, the sort of the town representatives for the Baku, uh, came to Picard or to Admiral Doherty and said, wow, you know, we really thought about this. There's, there's a hundred billion people in the Federation mm-hmm. that could benefit from what we have here. Uh, even though we'll mess up our way of life, we, we really should share this because, uh, because other people should have this too. Mm-hmm. Well, then it's a very different thing. Yeah. And that would be fine. That'd be fantastic. It actually sort of goes back to the question I asked at the beginning. How long before the orbit of this planet is just, you know, lit up like a Christmas tree at night because Mm -hmm. so many people are just going to be near here? They're still affecting them. And I guess I do kind of have to ask the question of like, okay, well, how far does this go? And I'm not saying – I mean, look, ideally, I want to leave those people alone. And in fairness, we can leave those people alone. We can and we Mm -hmm. should leave those people alone because we didn't know about this and they did. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I'm always bothered by the fact that there are beaches I can't go to because somebody's great-great-grandfather got there before I even knew it existed. They called dibs <laughs> is pretty much what that mm-hmm. comes down to. Do the Baku really get to call dibs on this planet and this and this you know, metaphasic radiation? Mm-hmm. They should not be taken off of it. They should not be killed. Their way of life should not be stopped. I completely agree with all of those things. What Ruafo and what Dougherty were trying to do was reprehensible. Do they have to share now? Uh, yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> not for the purpose not. of this movie, I guess. They don't no, have to for no, this well, movie, right? Exactly. We were dealing with one yeah, very for, specific point in time for them. For the and, story we have here, no. Right, yeah. yeah. For the story we have here, they live happily ever after, and they sell the best quilts in the Alpha Quadrant. <laughs> With the lights up, the credits ended, with sweepers sweeping away the crumbs. It is time to see what we can take from Star Trek Insurrection. Oh, Ken, just like the final act of a movie, we've arrived at the final act of Mission Log. It's the the big moment, the denouement. And uh, we alluded to it in the last section. It's kind of the difficulty sometimes of doing our show is that we find morals, meanings, messages. We find interesting topics to debate and discuss and and, and chew up. And uh, you mentioned in the last segment that uh, we were so close to jumping ahead to the end. 
where we get to decide if this movie holds up or not. And you pose the question as to whether or not this movie is Star Trek and how Star Trek it is. Well, Ken, the wait is over. We've now arrived at the last segment of the show Mm -hmm. where we get to do that. I'm happy to say if you weren't, if you weren't aware, if you weren't uh, following along. So I'm going to ask you right now if the movie holds up, but, but I think we were starting down an interesting thread about not just the movie holding up, but how Star Trek is it? So um, lay it on me, Ken. What have you got? Uh, I think this movie holds up very well. I'm going to do the production side of it, and then I kind of want to get into the more Star Trek stuff when we talk about the messages, morals, and meanings. Um, I I will say what it suffers from is not much action. And I don't personally think that's a bad thing. I like the fact – well – when we were talking to Marina Sirtis several years ago now, or a couple of years ago now, and we were talking about favorite scenes for Troy, mm-hmm. and I said I like the scene where she's drunk with uh, with uh, Cochran in the bar, mm-hmm. and she said that's everybody's favorite scene. I want to take it back. She's wonderful in this movie. The yeah. playfulness between the two of them is fantastic in this movie, and why this is not remembered as like the some of the best Troy stuff, I don't know, except I think some people just kind of forget this movie. For me... Nemesis is completely forgettable. And I'm sorry, I know we haven't gotten there yet, but I will say I'm looking forward kind of to watching it next week, except I am Mm -hmm. assuming that I'm not because I can tell you that I watched Nemesis less than a year ago, maybe in the last six months. I don't remember anything about it. It is a completely forgettable movie to me for some reason. I don't know why that is. I'm looking forward to finding out (laughs) next week why it is I never remember anything about Nemesis. I remember loving this movie when it came out, and I've always had a fondness for it. And I'll be honest with you, I was a little, I was a little concerned approaching the movie this time because a lot of people say it's crap. I love this movie. I thought this movie held up wonderfully. It's got the Star Trek messages, which I'm hoping we'll get to in a moment. It's got fantastic performances by, by, um, by Marina Sirtis and, uh, and Jonathan Frakes. Uh, he, once again, I think is a very good director, more than able, more than capable. I feel like he does something really good with this movie. And I got to say, it's beautiful. The stuff in the briar patch, and it's silly that when they come into the briar patch, they're sort of casting a shadow because that would mean there would have to be a sun huger than all the stars in the <laughs> briar patch to cast that shadow. But it's gorgeous. It approaches sort of like a Maxfield Parish kind of thing. And when they're flying and all the the smoke or the vapor or whatever is coming out of the warp nacelles, that is also beautiful. I like the designs of the Sonar ship. I like the, the 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 foam village that all those people are living in. It's I mean I I don't understand why this movie doesn't play as well with Star Trek fans as 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 it does with me because or a lot of Star Trek fans anyway because we did get a lot of mentions from people like uh, it's all downhill after first contact. Mm-hmm. I'd rather watch this again. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I mean this movie holds up wonderfully well to me personally. And I understand it doesn't for everybody. And I'm curious, uh, Mr. Champion, uh, whether it does for you. Uh, so I had a, a similar but opposite uh, reaction to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, first of all, the Sona ship design, I, I actually don't care for them that much. Oh, really? but, but But so what? That, but they got those nice couches. They do. They do have that. Um, <laughs> when this movie came out, yeah. I I did not like it. And and it might have been that thing of uh, uh, first contact was so exciting and and big and full of action and the Borg and they were scary and yeah so what 
then this came out and I, it just didn't engage me. Hmm. And I talked to other Star Trek fans and friends of mine who are really into Star Trek. And, uh, they would say, yeah, but, but here's the great thing about this movie is it feels like a big episode of Star Trek, the next generation. Yeah. And, and and I would say, yeah, but you know what? It, It just didn't resonate for me as a movie. Now I got to go back and watch it for our show. And I loved it. I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Um, the morals, meanings, messages fired. I love seeing Picard back to the Picard that we got to know in Star Trek The Next Generation. Not that he wasn't a badass in First Contact, and, and we all had fun with that, but something didn't play totally true about that. Um, this Picard plays totally true. This movie is so Star Trek, and it's so Next Generation in particular that it's hard to come to any conclusion that it doesn't work. Um, you can go scene by scene if you want. Yeah, there are some pacing problems, like you mentioned. There are moments where tonally it doesn't always work, that, like some attempts at humor that either feel like too much or too little. But it, those are minor. They're very, very minor. I love what we get out of Picard. Um, I, I like that there's another good romance for him, even if it's cut short. Um, Anish is a great counterpart for him. You know, we, we, we had this in the TV series where they would introduce somebody as a romantic counterpart for Picard. It always had to be somebody extraordinary, <laughs> you know. Why not have somebody who's so extraordinary that she's 300 years old and, and has had multiple life, lifetimes of experience to have some wisdom that goes beyond even the wisdom that Picard has? This is a, a great foil for him, a, a great... Uh, a great counterpart for him. But here's the thing. So if you happen to have just watched all of Next Gen in order, say weekly for a podcast, right. then this really, truly feels like an extension of everything that we liked about Next Gen, just on a bigger scale. And I guess it just didn't hold up for the ticket-buying audience. Um but as a story and as a slice of Star Trek, man, does it hold up. Um, and, and like you, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little bummed that just within the confines of us doing our show, we only have so much time to rewatch and rewatch and then pull together our notes. Yeah. That this is one that I do want to just rewatch for pleasure because I feel like there's even more I would get out of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I hope that I, I'm glad that people wrote to us saying, um, "Oh, please go easy on this movie." Or people wrote to us said, "Oh, all these movies are terrible." Because when I get any of those, I, I try to put all of that out of my mind and make sure that I'm watching with fresh eyes. And that's exactly what I did watching this for our purposes here. I got to watch this with totally fresh eyes, and it was great. It, it put me right back to that happy place of all the good conversations that we got to have about watching good next gen. So you also mentioned in trivia that you felt like, uh, well, not you felt like Michael Peller felt like it needed to get back to, you know, more of a Star Trek feel, if you will. Of course, the whole reason we were put together, you and me, uh, by Roddenberry Entertainment, (laughs) was to talk about the messages, morals, and meanings of each episode of Star Trek. So here's this guy who says we need to get back to the more Star Trek kind of thing. I have to ask you, uh, what messages did you find in here, sir? 
And funny, when you say put together, you mean literally we were assembled by Roddenberry Entertainment to, uh, to do that out of, out of spare parts. I'm yeah. really looking forward to my upgrade when it comes in. Oh, man, aren't we all? Um, well, I mentioned the, the, the environmental parallel. I, I do feel like that's in there, although that's not really the central theme of this, the way it is in, in Star Trek IV. Um, similar to Generations, I do feel like there's a thread here about not letting your own goals uh, being achieved at the expense of others. Mm-hmm. You know, that was something we talked about in there. And, and that that is just the very bonk-bonk-on-the-head difference between a Picard and an Admiral Doherty. Admiral Doherty is in it for everything that he can get out of it. Picard is the guy that we aspire to be who can step back and say, what's the actual impact of our actions here? And are we actually living up to the principles that that we say that we hold? Um, the other, man, the big, big message that I got here, uh, the, the old axiom, a man is known by the company he keeps. I love watching Doherty squirm. And I love watching him try to justify every terrible thing that he does mm-hmm. um, because – and it's partly the script and it's partly Anthony Zerb's performance because they, there is something truthful and believable about that guy as despicable as he is who would just totally dedicate himself – to completely the wrong path and think that he will be okay by doing that. So that's uh, that's an interesting part of this movie to watch. Um, and then, you know, the, the thing that comes down to Picard and that very dramatic scene of him taking off his, uh, his rank pips and then being joined by his crew to go against the orders he, he was given. Will you follow orders or will you do what is right? Now, it's not always that dramatic when we say that the prime directive is about doing what's right, even when it's difficult. In this case, we're really taking to the extreme and saying, yeah, it's so difficult. You actually have to break your orders. You actually have to take off the uniform that you have dedicated your life to and get yourself into an incredibly dangerous situation. But it is the right thing to do in this case. So it's interesting to see that play out and see the crew fall in behind their captain, even if he's not officially the captain in that respect. Um, but what about you? You know, there, there's there, there's so much in this movie. What else? There is. And I'm going to start with something that I actually don't like. Okay. Um, we're once again down to a federation that doesn't represent the best that we can be. Mm. At the same time, I do remember talking to a friend of mine uh, years before Insurrection came out. May have actually still been when Star Trek was uh, when Next Gen was still on the air, or it might have been after something. It might have been after First Contact. I don't know. Um, and saying that the only thing left for the development of the Picard character was for him to outgrow the Federation. Mm. I mean, that's mm-hmm. really kind of all that was left for him if we were going to see that character grow. It must have been in the movies, actually, that we were talking about it because, I mean, because that's what we had gotten to at that point, right? You can go week after week after week after week with the same Picard, the same Riker, the same Troy because we're going out and we're doing other stuff every week and we're learning about other cultures and applying that to our own. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, basically, first contact had gotten so big that there was really nothing for Picard left to do except for leave, you know, or yeah. to come to loggerheads. You could argue that Kirk actually had to follow a similar path in Star Trek Three. Now, the thing is, I don't really like when the Federation goes dark normally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, I don't like that at all. But 
And maybe it's especially in today's political climate. Mm -hmm. I like that we have a hero who doesn't think for a moment about going along with what we all know is wrong. We're betraying the principles on which the Federation was founded. It's an attack upon its very soul. I don't like that those words have to be spoken, but when they have to be spoken, I'm glad there was somebody there to say them. Yeah. And I especially like that it was this Picard, right? Not this Picard who's like, oh, I remember you and I liked you and I'm going to betray you, but it's okay. And yes, that was a crew member of mine, but there's no saving him, even though there was saving me. I mean, he was basically, he was Bruce Willis yeah. <laughs> in the last yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. He was diehard. He was diehard in the last movie. And this time he's, uh, this time he's, he's Jean-Luc Picard for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, things that I like, there are plenty of them. Um, these are perilous times for the Federation. I can't abandon it to people who would threaten everything I've spent a lifetime defending. Mm-hmm. And I go again, honestly, to the current political climate. There are lots of people who are getting out of politics because it's gotten hard. Mm-hmm. What were you in it for? <laughs> I'm kind of, and, and I don't mean for this all to be a political thing, but I mean, this is, this is sort of like where the Picard thing is, right? It's a Star Trek. It is politics. Okay. It's art. It's art. It's so, politics. So he has found a planet where he will be welcome. He has found a planet with a woman that he loves. He has found a planet where he could conceivably live forever. But the thing he has devoted his life to is not coming apart at the seams. It's being eaten from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And he can't let that happen. And I kind of, I, 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 on the one hand, I hate it because <laughs> if anybody deserves to like, you know, spend the rest of his life uh, being loved and being healthy and being happy, it's Picard. Sure. But it would be at the expense of everybody else. This actually is where the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Picard would be much happier there. Yeah. Except for the part where he would know that, you know, everything in all of the worlds that he has ever cared about I will be taken apart by jerks like Dougherty. Mm-hmm. So, and the the one thing that I did dislike as well, they should have beamed Rolfo out. And I know why they didn't. He's the bad guy. We want to see him die, and it's a big movie. And that's yeah. that's asking yeah. a little bit much of a, you know, buying a ten dollar tub of popcorn crowd, you know, to to say, oh look, and we even saved the bad guy because you know we all want to see the bad guy die. And you know, on a yeah. Saturday morning matinee. Or a Saturday afternoon matinee, excuse me, I'm with you on that. Uh, other messages really quickly. Uh, be in the now is just all over all these movies. Oh, yeah. Picard says you have warp capability and Anish says uh, capability, yes, but where can warp drive take us except for away from here? She's happy where she is. She doesn't need to, you know, go and bigger and farther and faster and all that stuff. Um, you stop reviewing what happened yesterday. Stop planning for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's just, you know, she's being the now. Um, There's definitely a message here, obviously, about the rights of different cultures to live as they choose without encroachment. As you mentioned, and as I mentioned, I think, in the last segment, I don't think that you can deal with people who deal dirty and come out clean. Yeah, it may look good now, but it's going to – you will not make them better. They will make you worse, Mm. more than likely. And, uh, you know, the very last thing is be who you say you are. The same thing that we talked about a million times during uh, TOS and TNG. We're betraying the principles on which the Federation was founded. It's an attack upon its very soul. They have always said they're going to be this thing. Oh, oh, but they have really nice toys. So I'll tell you what, we're going to be bad for a bit, but it's going to be for the betterment of everybody else. And I, I assure you that at the end of this, we'll still be the Federation. Mm. 
well, you'll, you'll still have the Federation flag. I'll be curious to see what you actually are when it's all done. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Roddenberry does all kinds of things, not the least of which is podcast, or two, or three, or more. You can check out our show, Women at Warp, Priority One, and The Trek Files at podcast.roddenberry.com. Hey, if you want to help support our show directly, you can do that at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM, that's trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, Star Trek Nemesis. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Seriously though, what was Warp doing there? transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.